The countdown to legal recreational adult use of marijuana is underway in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Do you think you know how to use it and what it does to your body? Alcohol is poison. Just one of the opinions Dr. Jordan Tischler of Inhale MD, a Harvard-educated physician who spoke at the New England Cannabis Convention a few weeks ago in Boston, said, we'll talk with him next on In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, once again brought to you by Vape Daddy's, the premier retail store dedicated to vaping your favorite substance of choice. Now, with four locations in the Boston area, in Newton, Norwood, Framingham, and Braintree, who's your daddy? Vape Daddy's the answer. Make sure you subscribe, like, and share this podcast with episodes available on iTunes and the CLNS Media Network. And a video record of this is also will be available at CLNS Media's YouTube channel. So, Dr. Jordan Tischer, first of all, thank you so much for coming in today. Well, thanks for having me, and it's always a pleasure. And one of the other things you talked about was the actual use of the product, and there are different things and different ways to use the product. Um, the most traditional, we've already mentioned, uh, rolling a joint, yep. um, rolling papers, uh, a match or a lighter, and bang, off you go. There's now uh, a whole bunch of different vaping machines where you can um, warm up the uh, cannabis flower and, and get vapor into your lungs as opposed to smoke. Absolutely. That's a preferred method. Correct? Very much so. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We would expect that smoking is very bad for you. And it turns out that we have some pretty good long-term data on cannabis smokers and what happens to their lung health. And so far, to everyone's surprise, it doesn't look so bad. But the catch is that what we know from our tobacco smoking folk is that they tend to get into trouble around 40 years worth of use. Mm. And our cannabis data, while it's long at sort of about 20, 25 years worth of data, it's not quite 40 years. So I think it's reassuring, but it doesn't get us off the hook. So if we can avoid smoke, that seems like a prudent thing to do. Um, if a patient comes to me and says, Doc, I want to try smoking for a couple of weeks while I figure out whether this is going to work for me uh, before I invest money into a vaporizer, I don't have a problem with that. But I do try to hold them to their word and say, look, if this has been working, I don't want you to keep smoking it. Yeah. Um, the vaporizers, as you mentioned, sort of come in, in two classes. They're the kinds that you can put cannabis, ground cannabis flower into. And then there are the sort of ubiquitous pen-type things. And the, the issue for me is that the pen-type things can have additive chemicals. And even if they don't have added chem additive chemicals, they can overheat the cannabis oil or concentrate, and that can actually liberate uh, cancer-causing agents. So in general, mm -hmm. I tend to point people away from vaporizing with these pen and oil pen type things and back towards vaporizing whole flour because that's just safer for people. It's hmm. a great point. Um, another way, of course, people are using this product is through uh, edibles, tincture, which is uh, through a, a drop. It's a liquid and you put it under your tongue. Um, I, and I'll admit I've tried both the edible and the tincture and both times I get nauseous from it. Oh. And I don't like it, mm -hmm. obviously. 
No one wants to get. It's like one of the reasons why I don't drink a lot is because I don't like to get sick. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm, nope. I hate to say it, guys, but that's why five beers was my limit even in those days back in the day in college. But I couldn't go beyond that. And I knew that was my limit. And that's what I stuck to. And um, we'll get into the mixing in a moment. But definitely tell me a little bit about how you feel about the tinctures. There's also They're also available in deposit, uh, suppositories and in pills, too. Yep. Um, you know, right now, because the industry is growing and it doesn't have the typical oversight that medicines usually do from the FDA, my view is that if you have a surface or a hole, somebody has decided to stick cannabis there. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't unfortunately, okay. mean that it works. Okay. Um, so, you know, one of the common misconceptions out there, people will say, oh, well, if you don't want to smoke it, you can take an edible. And that's really very not true. Um, when you inhale, whether we're talking about smoking or vaporization, yep. um, the onset of of the reaction, the benefit, is quick, meaning sort of 10 to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it also doesn't last a super long time. It lasts about three or four hours. So, you know, that actually turns out to be very useful time course for a number of, shall we say, episodic problems. Um, by contrast, the stuff you take by mouth um, not only takes longer to kick in, but it's unpredictable as to when that may be. So it might be an hour or it might be two, three hours. I had one patient report that he had taken an edible at one point and sort of forgotten about it. And it was eight hours later, he was driving somewhere where, when it kicked in. Now, that's a pretty extreme case. Yeah. But, you know, the point is that if you have a need like my arm hurts now, then the edible is really not sort of the way to approach an acute episodic pain. On the other hand, once they do kick in because of the nature of the chemistry, they last much longer, more like 8 to 12 hours. So for my patients who have pain that's sort of 24-7, mm -hmm. that, those are much more useful, not as needed, but rather by the clock, to maintain sort of a baseline level of pain control. And that's very helpful. And sometimes we need a combination of inhaled with oral, and that gets us kind of the, the best uh, pain control. Uh, you mentioned tinctures. Tinctures are a liquid extract of cannabis that you can take into your mouth. But the m mythology is that you put it under your tongue. And I really wish that would go away because we know from studies that when you put it under your tongue, you may trigger a placebo reaction meaning I put some medicine under my tongue, I should be feeling stoned about now. But in fact, when we measure the blood levels, there is no cannabis in your blood from that under the tongue experience. And then, of course, everybody swallows it. And when they swallow it, now we're sort of into that edible category again. Um, and in fact, the absorption of tinctures is not nearly as good as that of edibles. Um, so I use tinctures in my practice, but it's fairly uncommon, meaning there has to be some particularly good reason, like a particular type of cannabis medicine only comes that way, or they have a feeding tube in and the medicine needs to go down the tube, or those Oof. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but in general, uh, vaporized flour for inhalation and a small, low-calorie uh, um, edible because, of course, take two brownies and call me in the morning is not good medicine either when we have to think about the fact that our patients may be older, they may be diabetic, they might be overweight, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things need to factor in. Um, 
And the other one that you hadn't mentioned, uh, but it's another type of product category, are topicals, creams and balms and, oh, yeah. and patches. And again, we know definitively that cannabinoids, the medicines from cannabis, don't go through your skin. Yep. So they can be used for various dermatologic conditions, but if you want to treat your knee pain, rubbing a cannabis cream on the outside of your knee is a great way to trigger a placebo effect, but the cannabinoids are not doing anything. Interesting. And, you know, where I get a little wiggy about this is that these products are very expensive, yeah. and mo many of my patients who are all paying out of their pockets, many of them can't afford to kind of fool around and waste money. So if you're going to buy a jar of this topical at $80 for sort of half an ounce and it's going to do nothing for you, I got a problem with that. Yeah. I understand. I, by the way, and I think I've tried all the topicals. Well, this is the thing is that this is the nature of the industry as it is regulated and construed now is that they can make a lot of money just convincing you to keep trying new and different things instead of saying, go to the doctor. Ask her what's going to work. Go buy that, and 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 be and be done with it. And that that's a, an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And and but the placebo effect, and you've mentioned this a few times, the power of the mind can be very strong. And you've you've seen clinical trials and versus placebos, whether it be with cannabis or or other medications. Um, there are times when I rub it on and I say, "Whoa, that pain went away." Now, it's because I wish it would go away by the time I get that. Yep. But I'm willing to deal with that well, because I think it's gone away. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, and, and if it's actually working for you and that's 80 bucks well spent, Oof. then that's fine. 30 is me. as much as I've ever spent okay. on it. Okay. I just want to say. But, but um, you know, it, it's, it's the other use case that I'm more concerned about, which is the the implication by the industry that, well, if that didn't work, just buy the next one and buy the next one and buy the next one. You know, if somebody wants to try a chocolate bar after I've recommended inhaling something, as long as they do it in a safe manner, I'm not going to get upset with them about that. And most of the time they do. And most of the time they come back and say, Doc, you know what? I should have listened to you. And I say, well, yeah, okay, that's fine. That's why I'm here. I'm here to help you, right? Um, and you can live to tell the story exactly. no matter how much you do really and truly because there aren't many cases of uh, cannabis overdosing. Well, you know, the industry— Specifically. The industry is very fond of saying you can't overdose on cannabis. And yes, that's you can. Not, I'll be, tell you right now. Yes, you can. Right. So what you, you can can't put too do much is, in your system. Right. Okay. You can't lethally overdose that's on important. cannabis. Yes. And that is a wonderful thing. It doesn't, however, mean that you can't take too much and be quite miserable. Right. And where I get, you know, again, focused on this is that if the industry is out there sort of encouraging people to do more is more rather than less is more, then particularly in my older group of patients, I'm worried, and I've seen this, that they get misdirected into doing too much. Right. And then they feel sick and they call me up and say, Doc, why do I feel sick? And what I find is the answer is because the you listen to the bud tender instead of to me, which, you know, again, isn't such a big deal, except that then they don't want to try again. Right? It's scary. Was, it's, it's scary. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's scary. It, it's, it's very, very frightening. Yeah. And it can talk people out of ever doing right. this again, which means then they're not going to be able to get the benefit that I know that they could get. And that's where I get a little peevish. Right. And by the way, the most used drug in our society is the most abused drug in our society. 
and it's alcohol. And no we question. see bars and restaurants and liquor stores. Tar- they're all over the place. They're part of our culture. They're part of our society. And I, you said it, and I've said it myself. That's why I got so excited when you said alcohol is poison yeah. because you take too much of it and you die. That's poison. The bottom line is alcohol is is a product of fermentation. Mm-hmm. Fermentation, put not so nicely, is yeast poop, right? <laughs> I mean, they take the the corn or the or the rice or whatever food you're giving them, and they use it to live and use it to make energy, and then they poop out alcohol because that's the that's the product mm. of their of their um, uh, process. And so, you know, at the end of it, we have a vat full of yeast poop, and like every other kind of poop, it's not good for us. Right? right. If we take it in small doses, people generally find that it is or they like it um, and, you know, can control it for for many, many people. Alcohol is both pleasurable right. and not an issue. Right. right? A glass and, of wine at dinner is. Yeah. People enjoy that. Right. Absolutely. So do people who go home and take a bong hit or two. Yes, although I would prefer they took a vaporizer hit or two. Fair enough. I pre- and I understand the difference, too. Um, let's talk about mixing because that's a fascinating subject unto Audio? itself. No, I'm not. <laughs> I know you're a musician kind of. And we can certainly get into that later. But um, mixing alcohol and cannabis. Oh, yeah. Um, I've always – and again, I admit I have tried these things, Okay. And it depends on which one you start with. If you start with cannabis and you go and have a drink, it's going to serve as a catalyst and you're going to get much higher. Yep. If you start drinking and have one or two drinks and then take some cannabis, you're going to get really drunk or at least different. it's a different type of intoxication. I haven't seen literature on the I could write difference a of effect <laughs> based on which one you start with. But right. I, what I can tell you is this, yeah. that alcohol interacts with the cannabinoids in your bloodstream. So what that means is that when you add alcohol, the amount of free cannabinoids as opposed to, you know, uh, squirreled away cannabinoids goes up by eightfold. So what I tell my patients eight times, eight times, right? Whoa. So I tell my patients one plus one does not equal two; it equals eight. Wow! Right? So you're not just going to get as messed up as you would from the cannabis and the alcohol. They work together and get you eight times or four times more more toasted. Wow! So you know, again, it can be dangerous if you're doing this carefully and slowly, and you have some experience with it. Then certainly, you know, it's manageable, mm-hmm. but if you are the sort of person who um, has maybe a glass or a half a glass of wine each night, and then you come in to see somebody like myself uh, for your knee pain or something like that, and we recommend that you go and add cannabis, if we don't warn you about this, right. then you can end up getting far more intoxicated than you expect or that I would, than I would mm. expect. And so, again, part of my 
discussion with new patients is, look, while we're starting you on cannabis, I think you should lay off the alcohol. Once we have your dose of cannabis stabilized, then slowly and gently we can bring alcohol back into the mix because at that point we can start to say what's what and we can prioritize the cannabis, which is the medicine in this case, and, and do it gently and slowly and carefully. And so it doesn't become a problem. Most of the responsible doctors that I've talked to in the program do have this mantra of, we want you to take as little as possible to get the maximum effect possible. That's absolutely correct. And I think that's a that needs, by the way, to be told to the public. Um, one of the frustrations I have in Massachusetts is I have yet to see a positive public service announcement about <laughs> cannabis. I don't understand that because I think there's so many people out there who could benefit from it that are still, oh, it's federally... It's still illegal federally, you know, kit, kit. Right. Okay. Or it's going to screw up your teenagers. You know, oh. well, you know, it might, but that doesn't it's mean that. Up. Sorry, I've had a teenager. They get screwed up anyway. I don't care what you have on them. It's just a challenge. It's <laughs> right. But I mean, even as a matter of public policy, why would we uh, block access to a useful medicine for you know, the entire adult population simply because we think that the population between the ages of, say, 12 and 18 or 12 and 20 might have a problem with this. There are other ways to handle this. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I think, we, you know, the Cannabis Control Commission has made some regulations that I think will lead to um, more public uh, service announcements of a positive nature, uh, things that will say, you know, um, Less is possible. Yeah. Less, less is, is more. Less and, is more. And, and, and moderation and right. responsibility and get education and talk to your children about this because that's the only they're going to try everything because that's the nature of the beast when you become an adolescent. So I'll, I'll tell you a little story about my daughter. You're who, sure you want to? Well, this is a this is a good story. OK, good. Um, so. She's now 15, but at the Whew. time she was maybe 12, and I yeah. took her to a rock concert. Yeah. And we were standing in the seats when along came the fine aroma of cannabis, and she took a sniff and said, Dad, what is that smell? That skunky smell. Right. And I said, Honey, that's the smell of cannabis. And without missing a beat, she said, But Dad, why would anyone be using their medicine here? Wow. Good yeah. job, Doc. That, you know, that's education. That's being around it. That's being exposed to it and talking about it and not making a big deal. By the way, Europe does not have a lot of problems with alcoholism because they actually educate their children during their youth about it. In the United States, I believe we have the highest uh, percentage of alcoholics in, in the world. I know, but it's up there. It's up there. It's well, Some of the Scandinavian countries are, are ahead go. of us. Well, <laughs> but then again, it's dark there all the time, so <laughs> it's different. <laughs> Who knows? Right. Um, so I guess it, it kind of goes back to uh, moderation, education, find out how little you need to get the maximum benefit, and... Try it because yeah. guess what? It's here to stay now that it's legalized and you might as well learn about it rather than fight it because there are so many positive good benefits to it. And I, I can absolutely that. I think, you know, the only thing I would say is when you try it, get your information from a reputable source. You know, if you are trying this for a medical reason, even if it's a minor medical reason like a knee pain or something. Mm -hmm. Go see a doctor, you know, get get some learning. Inhale MD. Well, there's that com. too. <laughs> but, um, you know, 
but I run this association of cannabis specialists because it can't all be me. It can't be everyone in my right. practice, though I certainly welcome people. Mm-hmm. Um, the point is that we need to get the medical profession out there understanding this stuff. Yeah. And we need to do it in a responsible fashion so that people get the care that they need. Mm-hmm. You know, my mantra has always been, it's not about the card, it's about the care. And that's that's great. You know, I like that a lot before I have the last question for you, because this is one of those that I just don't know the answer to. And I'm taking advantage of your expertise here. (laughs) There's a lot of talk. Massachusetts has one of the first states to uh, in this law uh, to allow social clubs. Mm -hmm. And I I find that fascinating because I am an anti smoker. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be around someone who is smoking um, in a restaurant, in a public building. I can somewhat tolerate it when it's outside, okay. when it's in the open air. And that, that goes for cigar smoke, too, because I have a lot of friends who smoke cigars on the golf course. And you know what? I, it doesn't bother me as much out there. It just sure. doesn't. There is still a danger about secondhand smoke. And right now we're just talking about cigarette smoke. Mm-hmm. Does that transfer over to cannabis with secondhand smoke? And can you compare it to secondhand vaping? Good question. Come on, good tell question. me. That was a good question. <laughs> that Come was on. a good question. I thought about this. I said, I want to know this answer. Yep. Um, so th- there are sort of two aspects of that question. Mm-hmm. Um, one is the smoke, and the other is the cannabinoids that may be in the smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, what we know from research that was done um, several decades ago is that unless you are literally locked in a box with somebody smoking weed, um, you're not going to get a, a contact high. That that was a myth, that was the, the, right? Yeah. And that you can <clears throat> essentially, in any reasonably ventilated space, you will not get enough cannabinoids to have a measurable blood level. Um, the question of can that smoke do harm to your lungs? Well, we think probably the answer again is no, because the people who are smoking it themselves don't seem to develop harm. But we have been able to show that you do inhale a fair amount of that smoke. And from that, it might be reasonable to infer that that could do some damage down the line. Although, again, probably we're, you know, so far we're not seeing it. So there is some concern there, but I think it's fairly academic at the moment. Um, again, my view on this is we should be avoiding smoke altogether, whether primary or secondhand. Yeah. And, but the issue of secondhand cannabinoid inhalation is really a non-issue. So you, I wonder if that is the answer to these social clubs, that they allow inside vaping. And I suppose that would go for the non-nicotine e-cigarettes that are out there too, um, and, and just ban the actual using a lighter, a, a fumigation. I, I don't know if that is ever going to get accepted or not, but to me, it does It does solve the socialization that I think Massachusetts voters want to see and also still separate smoke from smoke. I think that there's a lot to be discussed there. Um, first of all, the Cannabis Control Commission put the brakes on social consumption for right. a period of time. Right. You know, I think people, some people are, are upset about that. But in general, so far, every time they've put the brakes on, it has been to delve deeper into into making good policy. Right. So their track record so far seems reasonable. Yeah. Um, the difference, I think, between a restaurant and a bar, 
um, is that, you know, there may be a lot of reasons why you would end up in a restaurant or a bar other than to smoke a cigarette or smoke a joint. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we're talking about a cannabis consumption club, I think there's fairly little reason that you would be there other than to consume cannabis. Right. And so maybe the rules then are a little bit different because... Uh, people are choosing to be there as opposed to I went for dinner and the guy at the next table was smoking right. a cigar. Right. You, you know, there are probably exceptions to that too, which is I went with my friend and he's smoking and everybody's smoking, but I don't want to. Right. I don't know where the interplay of that, those sorts of things come into in, into the regulation. There are some interesting companies out there. Um, there's one up in um, Waltham uh, called Canacorp. Yep. And uh, in, in full disclosure mode here, I am on their board of advisors, and they make a vaporizer mm -hmm. that uses a pod uh, to um, load in the cannabis. So you buy these pods. Think Keurig coffee. Right. So Is it Wisp? Wisp, exactly. Talk about Wisp. Wisp, exactly. I, I saw the demonstration. Right. So, you know, when... When we conceptualized this, and when and as I've been working with them on this, this was about delivering specific doses to patients. But they came up with this very interesting model, which is that you could use the pod sort of like you might use a shot glass or a jigger in a bar to measure out how much a patron was getting so right. that you would go into the bar and you might order a um, – you know, you might order a, a a dose or a drink or whatever the equivalent is, and what you would get would be they would load the pot in, run the machine, and you would be handed this bottle full of vapor that we would know that if you inhale that, you're getting a 10 milligram dose of THC. And then you could figure out, you could at least keep track of right. how much each patron was getting. Right. And then those laws that make bars responsible for their patrons' outcomes could be reasonably monitored. I thought that was kind of a clever repurposing of an otherwise medical tool. Yeah. And I'm all for uh, microdosing and finding the right dose for each individual, no matter which way you use it. Absolutely. You know, one of the things is people start talking about microdosing when they're talking about what I call a dose. Mm -hmm. um, people are so used to uh, this recreational model where we people use these enormous and totally unmeasured amounts. Right. When I'm talking to my patients, I'm generally finding that the sweet spot is around 10 milligrams. Yep. Some patients are a little below. Some people are a little above. But generally, on average, 10 milligrams seems to be an effective dose. And then people who are in the industry say, oh, that's a microdose. I'm like, no, that's a dose. That's Everything a dose. else was excessive. Right. When I talk about microdosing, I talk about something that's very different, which is using such low doses that they're below the uh, the the level of psychoactivity mm -hmm. um and and below the level of sort of therapeutic benefit with the idea that maybe we're getting sort of just sort of a mild kind of boost something that's almost imperceptible the way i could describe it is me but better um, gotcha. And that's really not a medical approach at all. That's what one might call wellness, right? right. And this, in fact, sort of historically stems from the crossover between uh, the Silicon Valley guys who were microdosing LSD and finding that that was helpful with their creativity and focus and that sort of thing. Um, there's really no data on doing that with cannabis, um, but there are people who are out there doing that, and I think it's important for us to understand that that's that is a true microdose, and that really has fairly little bearing 
on, on, on appropriate medical dosing, which is still much lower than any of these recreational conceptions. Well, as usual, I've enjoyed this conversation, and it could go on for hours, but I'm not going to <laughs> because I'm sure we both have a life after this. Um, Dr. Jordan Tischler, thank you so much for coming in today. Oh, entirely my pleasure. I enjoyed talking with you. And I, to you. And, and I think I'll be following up with Inhale MD, I might add. And for people who want to know, they can go online and contact you through that Absolutely. Uh, online. InhaleMD.com. We've got um, over 100 articles on how cannabis can be useful to you and for what purposes, um, as well as obviously you can um, contact us through that, and we'd be happy to take care of you. Fair enough. All right. Well, that'll do it for In the Weeds, brought to you by Vape Daddies, now with four locations in the greater Boston area for all of your vaping needs and questions. Remember to subscribe to In the Weeds on clnsmedia.com. For Dr. Jordan Tischler, I'm Jimmy Young, and you've been listening to In the Weeds on clnsmedia.com. In the Weeds is a podcast produced at the studios of Little Park Media in Wellesley, Massachusetts, for the listening enjoyment of our audience. None of the opinions or advice on this program should be considered medical advice or a substitute for seeing a certified medical marijuana practitioner or your local physician. All opinions and thoughts on this show do not necessarily represent the management of CLNS Media Group or Little Park Media.